I had a chance to talk with Marty Cooper, the inventor of the cell phone, who shared his stories about the first mobile phone call ever, and talked about everything from the dangers of monopolies to closing the digital divide. Here's part one of our four-part interview. I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. Well, I am pleased and thrilled to welcome Martin Cooper, who led the Motorola team to develop the first portable handset and is credited as the father of the cell phone. Welcome, Marty. Great to be here, Roger. So it's a remarkable story, the, the development of the first cell phone, and you chronicle this in your new book, Cutting the Cord. Can you talk a little bit about the development process? Because you know, flagship phones today take 12 to 18 months to develop and actually come to market, and you created the very first portable handset in three months. Talk about that experience, because that is uh, that is kind of insane, even when you look at how things are done in today's modern, advanced times. Well, Roger, much as I think it was a remarkable achievement, you should know that the individual technologies that we needed for this phone were in our laboratories. We were studying these things. We we knew how to make an integrated circuit, even though they weren't really being used then. Really, it just took a, a, a matter of uh, a lot of intensive effort, but also knowing what the problems were. And, and uh, uh, we had to invent a whole bunch of stuff uh, just in a couple of months. Uh, but I have, to, I have to tell you, these people were dedicated. Uh, our team worked day and night uh, for three months trying to fulfill this uh, dream that came into my head. Uh, in a matter of hours. Yeah, and one of the recurrent themes, I feel like every time you talk to someone at Motorola about this project or try to convince them to jump on, there was sort of a, well, this can't be done. This is impossible. This is crazy, Marty. Like, that. how did you go from that to getting them, from getting folks to think that this is an impossible task to getting them to actually do it and actually fall through and execute on this on this vision of yours? Well, Roger, that's the story of my life uh, at Motorola. I would... Uh, continually tell people, uh, I'd like to do so-and-so, and they say, that's impossible. Uh, and uh, sure enough, we managed to do it. And the, uh, the reason that I keep asking these things is because I am a dreamer. Uh, I spend uh, more time thinking about the future than I do about the present, which, by the way, makes me a lousy executive. We discovered that uh, after I ran a number of businesses. Yeah, but I do think a lot about the future and about what can be done. Uh, and whatever I think about uh, has a basis in technology. And that's the important thing. These are not wild dreams that I that I uh, have had in the past. And, and, and the cell phone was not a wild dream because yeah, we did it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You were able to fit a bunch of, as you noted, a bunch of these inventions, these, these innovations were already in the lab at Motorola. But you were able to kind of get this all crammed into a, a single... Uh, shoe boot shaped phone, the Dynatac. Uh, yeah, kind of set the scene. If you talk, oh, and you've got it right there with you. That's fantastic. That's what it looked Look, like. Wow. Having said that, uh, Roger, this was a one of a kind. Uh, building something that can be reproduced is a lot harder than building. And we only built two phones like this. They were hand built, soldered together with thousands of parts much more complicated than a modern cell phone, believe it or not. And yet all this thing did was talk and listen. There, we, the personal computer hadn't been invented in 1973. The digital camera didn't exist. The internet didn't exist. Well, and tell me about that, that, that first cell phone call. You were in New York City, and 
you're you're with with the press actually with a reporter. Uh, talk a little bit about that monumental moment when you made the first call because it's a it's a great story for folks who don't know it. Well, it was just serendipitous. I, uh, I uh, made the arrangements for this reporter to meet me on Sixth Avenue in New York because I really wanted to demonstrate the freedom that comes from being able to be anywhere. You know, sitting here like this uh, in a chair uh, talking to you doesn't prove a thing. So uh, we managed to get out on the street. And at the last minute, I thought, gee, who should I call to demonstrate this thing? And I reached into my pocket and pulled out my little address book, because that's the way we did it (laughs) in in primitive times. And I looked up the number of my counterpart at AT AT&T. This was the old AT&T, the Bell System. Uh, And we were in a battle with them because they were trying to make uh, cell phones, but their cell phone was a car telephone. And our view was that for a hundred years, we had been constrained by this copper wire to be in a place tied to our desk, tied to our uh, kitchen phone. Uh, And now the the, uh, bell system wants us to be stuck in our cars. So uh, this uh, Joel Engel was my counterpart in the Bell system. He was running that program. uh, And I called him, dialed his number. Remarkably, he answered, not his secretary. Talk about serendipity. And I said, uh, hi, Joel. It's Marty Cooper. He says, hi, Marty. I said, "Uh, Joel, I'm calling you on a cell phone. He says, oh, really? Yeah, but a real cell phone, a handheld personal, portable cell phone. As you notice, I didn't hold back at all. I rubbing it in <laughs> silence on the other end of the line. Uh, he was polite. Uh, to this day, Joel doesn't remember their phone call. And I, I don't blame him, Roger. <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately, his name is somewhat synonymous as the guy who picked up the very first cell phone call. And back then, just to give our listeners some context, Motorola and AT&T, you guys were fairly bitter rivals. And AT&T was the big behemoth. It was the true Ma Bell monopoly back then, right? That's that's sort of what inspired this push to develop this phone so quickly, correct? Well, that's right. They were the biggest company in the world. Uh, Motorola was a relatively little company. And the Bell system uh, was not only suggesting that we have car telephones, but they were also just suggesting that they be the only provider, that they were going to be a monopoly. Uh, and on top of that, uh, they, they thought that the uh, cell phone business would be so small that they really needed other businesses using that same radio spectrum just so they could support the uh, technology. And so they wanted to do air-to-ground uh, and two-way radios. Well, that was our business. They wanted to take over our business as well. So all of those reasons uh, made our persuaded our management to literally bet the company. Motorola spent $100 million of $1975, which would be uh, uh, at least five times that much today over a period of 10 years, uh, just to keep the Bell system from being a monopoly and and to make sure that we had portable phones and not car phones. Yeah, that's an interesting point because it, it, the Dynatac or the original Dynatac you announced in 1973 was essentially about getting the FCC to you know grant over or, or, or authorize more competition. 
in the space as opposed to just give AT&T all the spectrum that they wanted, which is wildly different from anything we have right now. Like we're used to a product is announced, you know, in a week or two, you could buy this thing. It took 10 years for, for you guys to sell the very first Dianetech commercially uh, after you had made this big announcement uh, back in 1973, right? That's, it's just, I find that really interesting that there was this 10 year gap um, and I get that, that there was different reasons for it, but it, it just, I find that dynamic really fascinating. Yeah. Well, uh, there were two reasons for that 10 year gap. The, the biggest reason was that the FCC had to figure out who was going to provide this service. If it really was going to be competitive, uh, who were the competitors going to be? And it took a moment. And you know, this is the government the government doesn't do anything quickly. And, uh, their final conclusion was that they would split the radio channels into two categories. One is for the what they call the wireline common carriers, because by the time they got to doing this, the Bell system didn't exist anymore. Bell system was split up into a whole bunch of operating companies, and they, uh, the, all of them were wireline companies. And the FCC said, we're going to give you half of the spectrum, and the other half we're going to pick people based upon their ability to demonstrate that they can do this service. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, then they tried auctions, uh, and that is the way they uh, do it today. That process took them many years. But even when they finished that process, we still weren't quite ready. The, we had to create all this new technology, uh, and we certainly couldn't build uh, phones like this one where they were hand-built one part at a time, all wired together. So that combination of things is what took us uh, ten years. Talk about the the AT and T approach because you mentioned you know that their idea of mobile was car phones. So I'm really curious as to what the what you think or how you think things would have ended up had the FCC granted AT and T all the spectrum it asked for. It did maintain its monopoly because their their vision of mobility was very different from yours and from Motorola's, right? Well, you know, their whole thinking process was different. For a hundred years, the the mission of the phone company was to connect one place to another place. And what we had learned in the two-way radio business, it's people that are being connected. So when the uh, superintendent of police in in, uh, Chicago came to us and said, you know, uh, our uh, police officers are stuck in their cars because that's the only way we can uh, manage them. Uh, But the people are out of the street. This is uh, Commissioner uh, uh, Wilson. uh, He said, I want my patrolmen to be on the street and be connected. Can you do that? So we got the message. The communication has to be the people. And the phone company never got that message. And, And I don't think they'd get it today. I, I know that uh, that Joel himself, uh, we gave him an award some time ago, uh, and he said, oh, uh, I, when I want to make a call, I turn my phone on, and then I turn it off again. So so he hasn't, he hasn't <laughs> quite made it out of the old ways. Well, you, you, know, you talked about uh, making your fair share of mistakes uh, along the way uh, and how that often served as inspiration for progress. I'm curious if we could talk about some of those some of your more memorable mistakes and, and what you learned from them, how you, you sort of moved forward from that. Well, you know, the luckiest thing, one of the lucky things that I've, uh, has happened to me, and I guess I have been lucky in lots of ways, that was going to Motorola 
because the founder of Motorola had learned that. He learned the lesson of uh, if you reach out, you make mistakes. And and uh, he had a plaque at the entrance of our building that said, do not fear failure, reach out. And, and I took that seriously. Uh, and I reached out any number of times in my career. Uh, and when you do that, you do have failures. And I was lucky enough to be with a company that accepted that. Uh, and they accepted all my eccentricities and still kept me going. Uh, and we had enough successes uh, over the years that when it came to the really big one, which was the cellular that took a huge investment. Uh, and if they had failed in that, it would have been a serious problem for the company. And they still supported me uh, and spent tons of money uh, trying to influence the FCC. Uh, and of course, they were successful. And we all benefited from that. If they haven't done that, I guess I'm getting back to your question, where would we be today? There's no question in my mind that sooner or later, we would have had portable cell phones. No, it just had to happen, but it would have taken a long time. The way the Bell system operated is they have these laboratories, Bell Labs, which I'm sure you're familiar with. They would have an idea and they would create a product they would turn it over to their manufacturing company, which is part of the bell system. Uh, they would build it. They would turn it over to the operating company. Uh, and the operating company would say, Roger, here is what you wanted. <laughs> exactly backwards from the way we do it today, right? Today, we study the market. We try to figure out what people's habits are and match the technology to that. Start with the people. And that really is the nature of what technology uh, is you start out with the people, what the needs of the people are, uh, and try to match that with scientific progress. So one of the interesting notes in your book or tidbit was the fact that there was at one point like a failed project for a, a pager watch, which somewhat predated the, the smartwatch, the modern smartwatch. I'm just curious if there were any other ideas or concepts that you worked on back at Motorola that you know, you wish had come to fruition that, you know, things that are that, um, I don't know if it's regrets, but just any kind of, in terms of a trivia perspective, those kinds of products that, that were in the Motorola labs that, you know, you wished actually hit market. Well, the first thing I should, I should mention is that uh, the idea of having a, a wrist a device that was not at Motorola, it wasn't mine either. It, it was uh, Dick Tracy. Oh, right. <laughs> but uh, Dick Tracy had a, uh, a wrist two-way radio. And that was our mission in life, to build one. And finally, I, built, I did create one. It was huge. Uh, certainly, you would want to wear on your wrist. But we had a device that you could strap onto your wrist. And sure enough, the next week, Dick Tracy came out with a wrist uh, video camera. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, he was uh, way ahead of us. Of course, today we do that. We have everything uh, on your wrist. But it's interesting that, uh, that the comics anticipated some of our, our biggest advancements. That's a wrap for the first part. Stick around in the coming days for the next three parts where we tackle everything from Spectrum Auction to the power of big tech. If you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge or sign up for direct text messages from me by heading to cnet.co slash daily charge. 
And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate the podcast. It really helps us out. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.